0: Good evening. Can y'all hear me okay? Okay. How are y'all doing this evening? Good. Everybody enjoying the start of summer? Same. Thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying the start of summer. So am I. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Psalm chapter 61. That's where we're going to be spending this evening. Um, uh, Pastor Wade is in a, in a meeting and asked me to uh, fill in, and I am overjoyed. It feels like it's been a long time since I've um, preached, at least in here. And so um, I heard last week he covered like three psalms. Is that right? Well, when you're the best. Um, so we're going to look at one psalm, um, and, and, and really a precious psalm. So as we um, continue going through this series, you know, I was thinking the other day that you spent over a year in the psalms. Um, and so, y'all have been able to see all these different glimpses of um, really, I like to think of the Psalms as this idea of this, this emotional roller coaster of the faith that you see difficult trials and tribulations and how we should respond to them. And you see times of victory and triumph. And so, we're looking at this uh, evening as a time of, uh, of really tribulation and how should we then respond to it. Um, and we're going to look at um, this, this moment in David's life. And it's really one in particular moment and one of those moments that uh, really is, is defining. And so let's read through uh, Psalm chapter 61, and then we'll begin to um, walk through it together. So Psalm 61, starting in verse 1, says this. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praise to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege we have to come and to uh, worship together in this place, Lord. As we uh, look into your word, Lord, and the the truths that you would reveal in it, God, would you give us great comfort as we do so? Would you use your scriptures um, to conform us into the image of Christ, Lord? You promise um, or you pray for us in, in John 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And, and so Lord, we pray that over this evening. We pray that um, as we're here, that you would be faithful to your promise, Lord, knowing that you've said your word will never return void, that it will always accomplish its purpose. And so Father, um, we trust the scriptures tonight. Lord, we trust that they will lead us, that they will guide us. And Lord, above all, that they will honor you and reveal Christ to us. And so I come confessing my weakness, Lord, frail and feeble I am, but your scriptures are mighty. And Lord, they're able to convey to us the gospel, they're able to sanctify us, they're able to complete us, and that we might be equipped for every good work. And so, Father, we rest in that. Uh, It is in the name of Christ Jesus, and through His precious blood we pray. Amen. Um, I love Psalm 61, and I'm going to confess to you, today I had... um, Sermon prep is one of those things where it can be one of the most laborsome tasks, where it can just be very, very difficult to kind of look into it and say, okay, how am I going to spend an hour or 45 minutes walking through this text? But I'm telling you, I found such great joy in sermon prep this week. As we looked into this passage, Psalm 61, one of the things you'll notice is before uh, verse 1, you see to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. That's not a whole lot of background information, is it? Well, as I was studying, we discovered a couple of people who would argue that this happened in one particular moment in David's life, really a defining moment. Perhaps you're familiar with a character named Absalom. Absalom was David's son, not a very good one, but nonetheless, one of his children. Absalom, at one point, decided he wanted to be king and decided he was going to overthrow his father, David. And so that's exactly what he does. He comes in, he takes the throne from David, and David is then exiled, removed completely from Jerusalem, a city that he essentially won in battle, and he's exiled, he flees, and he finds himself sitting on the Mount of Olives. Um, And we're very familiar with the Mount of Olives. Incredible things happen here. Uh, For instance, when uh, the glory of God leaves the temple in the days of Ezekiel, uh, the glory rests for just a brief period of time on the Mount of Olives. Um, Later on in the New Testament, we see that Jesus would be standing on the Mount of Olives, looking over and and longing to gather Israel together. He says, I would have gathered you up as a mother hen under my wings. And so uh, this this place, this Mount of Olives, is one of the few places even in the surrounding area of Jerusalem that looks different down on the city of Jerusalem. More often than not, when you're walking toward Jerusalem, you're making an ascent. For instance, uh, probably like three and a half years from now, um, when y'all get to Psalm 122 and the following, um, you're going to discover what you see, uh, a song of ascent. That's how they label those psalms. And it's as uh, the people would climb up toward Jerusalem during days of Passover, they would sing those songs together. They called them songs of ascent, songs of essentially climbing up. And so David finds himself looking down on Jerusalem. He finds himself sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he begins to pray this prayer. Um, And he puts it in this psalm form. So let's start in verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you and my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge a strong tower against my enemy. So before we go any further, I just want to spend some time talking about David's circumstances. And really what I want to point out and what I want the kind of theme of this evening to be is what our circumstances should do in our lives. Um, far too often when we come to different situations in our life, whether it be tragedy, whether it be victory, no matter what it actually is happening in our day-to-day life, what should our response always be? Um, and we're going to look at this, this, this just... Um, snapshot of David's life to kind of consider these things. The first thing that we see about David's circumstances is that he is far from his normal place of worship. Notice this in verse 2. From the end of the earth I call to you. David had such an incredibly unique relationship with the Lord. I mean, yes, you see these moments of great difficulty. You see these moments of... Um, where we see uh, David and Bathsheba, and you see the sin that falls there, and then even where he goes out and, and kills Uriah the Hittite, essentially by, um, by proxy. But, but still there was this uniqueness about David's life, where he was, he was king, he had authority, but he always knew his, who, who his ultimate authority was. He might go and with boldness proclaim a message to all of Israel, but he would quickly find himself on his face before the Lord. And, and I can imagine even David having a longing in his heart, as we see in the Scriptures, to build God a place to dwell. And God essentially says, no, you're not going to build me one. your son will, but I'm going to build you into a house. And he gives David this great covenant saying that throughout all the ages there will be a king who will sit on the throne of David. And and David knows this, and I can imagine understanding and, and having that relationship with the Lord the way David does, how often he frequented the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built yet, but David would spend much time there. No, he didn't have the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies like the high priest would, but he still would have the ability to go and to dwell in the place where, where the glory of the Lord uniquely was. Now, before I go any further, I don't want don't to say that the, the glory of the Lord only dwelt in the tabernacle, but we would be fools not to say there was some uniqueness about it, Right? There was some uniqueness about the tabernacle. As you looked into the Old Testament, you see in the days of Moses, Moses would meet with God in the tabernacle. And even then, there was this pillar of cloud and fire that would go out, and that marked this idea of this is where the the presence of God rests. There is a uniqueness about this. Now, I want you to place yourself in David's position as he's been exiled, removed from the the nation of, of Jerusalem, and now he can't go there. He can't. He is far from his natural place of worship. He's far from the comfort that he has earned as king. I mean, you, he, he sees the temple, of, he sees Jerusalem. He, he gained for himself a kingdom, and he's been removed completely from it. And, and so you can imagine his, his, his heart just aching from this idea, if I'm far from my place where I would go and I would spend time with the Lord. And perhaps you have this place. When I was in high school, my youth pastor, probably not the best idea, but he gave me a key to the church. And I would go from time to time and I would, and I would stay there. for just, It was just a nice moment to be away from everyone. And it's where I kind of set aside. is This is the time I'm going to go and I'm going to be in prayer and I'm going to um, study the scriptures and I'm just going to have fellowship with the Lord here. Prayerfully, you have a place like this. Prayerfully, you have that, that closet or whether it be a desk in your home, but there's a place you go and you set, you've set it aside. You said, this is my place of worship. Can you imagine someone yanking that away from you? No longer can you go there. No longer can you go and and sit and dwell in the presence of God. In the midst of David's circumstances, he he, he is driven, because of what's happened, to go there and and to be alone with the Lord. How necessary would it be in the midst of these trials to have that unique communion with the Lord? And one of the beautiful things we discover here, and this is just an aside, but it's an important one, that our God is not bound to a tabernacle, a tent, or a church. Not in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Notice this. From the ends of the earth I call to you. David may be far, but God is not. David is incredibly far away from that tabernacle. He's very far away, and, and, and maybe not in distance, but there's no way that he can get in. But nonetheless, he is able to call out to God, and you hear this plea, hear my cry, oh God, listen to my prayer. And even though he may not be sitting in that, in that tent where he can see the, the table of showbread and the menorah and the, and the altar, he, can, he can't see those things. He is still fully aware that the God whom he serves is near. And his circumstances bring us to this place to say, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how distant we may be from that isolated place that we've set aside for the worship of God, we still have access to him. And praise be to God, he comes to us and hears. So we see that David is far from his natural place of worship, not only from his natural place of worship, but from his comfort. We are a comfort, like we are comfort-driven people, are we not? I mean... I bought chairs today for Mercy Hill, by the way. That's exciting. Um, I bought plastic chairs because they're cheap, and we need to use money well. I would have loved to have spent a bunch of money on these types of chairs, and I've been warned even that I'm going to have people come up to me and say that the chairs are not very comfortable, and I'm prepared for that. But what I've discovered is if we come to celebrate Christ, our comfort should be the very last of um, of our demands, shouldn't it? But friends, I, we, are so, we have been blinded by this idea of consumerism here in the U.S. that our comfort is the first and foremost thing. And, and I realize I'm jumping ahead here for just a minute, but I can't help it. How foolish is it that our comfort is the number one thing that drives us? And what's interesting is it drives us away from the Lord. But what you see here in David's life is as he is removed from his comfort, all it does is drive him to the Lord. All the more, my sweet friends, as we have our comforts being taken away from us, or even as we're sitting and enjoying our comforts, our prayer and our heart should be, thank you, Lord, for the comfort that you've given me. But Lord, if the comfort's not here, you're all I need. You're all I need. You're the only comfort that I desire, because truly, he is the only thing that is able to satisfy us. And we spend all of our time consuming these things, but friends, be aware that one day all the comforts of this world will burn. All of them will. Every last thing that we... Poured for our comfort will burn and only Christ will remain. And so you see David being far from his natural place of worship. You see him being far from his comfort. And then you also see David is faint from trial, travel, and sorrow. From the end of the earth I call to you and my heart is faint, says verse 2. Can you imagine how tired David is? I mean, he must be fatigued. He's, he's running a kingdom He's raising children. He's fighting battles. He's watched his uh, king that he served faithfully, Saul, die. He's watched his best friend, Jonathan, die. He's been betrayed. I mean, just all of the situations that had taken place in his life. And then this last blow being that his son would come and, and take his throne from him. What, what heaviness and what weariness would overtake our soul if we dealt with those things so frequently? And here we see David in the midst of being completely and totally faint and worn out, instead of saying and, or using it as an excuse to, to not seek the Lord and to not bow on our faces before God, that instead it drives him to the Lord in prayer. Martin Luther once said, uh, My day is so busy, I can't imagine not spending three hours in prayer before. I mean, just an incredible quote. I mean, challenging quote. And so David, in the midst of all this pain, all this turmoil in his life, says, I'm going to take a step back in the middle of this, in the midst of of just incredibly difficult situation, and I'm going to allow my weariness to drive me to the Lord. And and I'm going to be honest with you, I find more frequently than not that my weariness, I use it as, as an excuse to not run to him. I mean, I come in from the end of a, at the end of a day, and I'm tired, I'm worn out, whether it be from um, just basic labor of work or whether it be from going and playing too much. Sometimes we're faint from our play, aren't we? And we use that as an excuse to, to say, well, I really don't have time for these things. But the issue is you always have time for whatever is your priority. And we'll, grow, we'll wear ourselves, slam out, consuming the things of this world that when it's time for us to set aside to worship the Lord, we find ourselves too tired to do it. But friends, he does not ask you to be full of energy. He doesn't ask you to be 100%. He says, let all that is within me praise the Lord. I love that text. That means when there's nothing left, that means when my tank is empty, when I am slammed out of gas, I still have all that is within me that can praise the Lord. And I love what David is doing here. He's looking at all these circumstances, all this difficulty in his life, and instead of allowing it to push him away, I mean, can you imagine the bitterness that could have arisen in David's life? All these incredibly difficult circumstances. He could cry, I've been faithful, Lord. But instead, he doesn't grow bitter. Instead, he just says, Lord, given these circumstances, where else can I go? Where else can I go? And so he does just that. He flees and he runs to the Lord, even in his weariness. Lastly, we see this. David is aware of his lowliness. Notice in the end of verse 2. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David makes a strong confession. Remember who this is praying this. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Who is higher than David? I mean, imagine he looks around, he never sees anyone higher than himself. David is king, and and, and we don't have the idea of king the way we used to. When someone says that they are king, that means that they are sovereign. They have absolute authority over every single one of their subjects. It doesn't matter if it's his child. It doesn't matter if it's his older brother, if it's his dad. If he's king, he has sovereign rule and authority over them. And so for David to say in the midst of this difficult situation, uh, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, ultimately what David is saying is I know exactly who I am. I am but a man. I am but a man, feeble and frail. And I imagine all the more his, his, his being distant from that place of worship and feeling so faint from his trials and tribulations and even the battles that he found victory in, all the more that reminded him of exactly who he is, a man under the sovereign rule and reign of God, regardless of his position here on the earth. And I would like to make just a brief aside here and say how foolish are we. We are not even kings, and far too often we look at ourselves in the mirror and say how great are we. I have rule over my life. I have authority. I am sovereign over my circumstances. But friends, we are fools if we believe that. We are fools if we believe that we have authority over absolutely anything in our life. I'm reminded of passages (laughs) like Matthew chapter 8 all the way through chapter 9. We see Christ calm the wind and the waves. He alone has authority over creation. Agreed? Not only that, but we see him exercise demons, removing them from these men. He has authority over the spiritual things of this world. He has authority over the principalities and those things that would wage war against us. He has authority over illness as he heals the paralytic man. Lastly, he has authority to forgive sin, and he he alone does. And so when we're so foolish to think that there is no one higher than us, perhaps you should run outside and try to stop the rain. Maybe we could be reminded of the fact that we have no power at all. There is a rock that is indeed higher than I. And David, in the midst of this prayer, is confessing this exact thing. There is a rock that is higher than I. We'll come back to that idea. Lastly, we, or Secondly, we see this. David is remembering. Oh, how sweet it is to remember something. Let's look at this text. It's a sweet thing. In verse 3, For you have been my refuge. As strong a strong tower against my enemy. David is remembering God's faithfulness. Can you imagine as David is dealing with the circumstances? he's seeing his son Absalom take his throne? I wonder how frequently he went back to think about Goliath. Perhaps he thought about him relatively frequently, as David, this young shepherd boy who'd never yet seen battle, runs out and faces Goliath and grabs a couple of rocks along the way, throws it at him and watches a giant fall, but then t- quickly takes his sword and beheads him. Everybody, I mean literally every soul on the edge of the battlefield, Philistine and Israelite alike are looking out and and, and laughing as this small boy runs in to, to wage war against this great man, Goliath. And David watches him fall and thinks to himself, by God's hand. And all of Israel rejoices and the Philistines quake in fear because he has been faithful to Israel and he has been faithful to David. And so as David is remembering that God is his, has been his refuge faithfully, a strong tower against his enemies, or perhaps even he would begin to consider Saul. I mean, David in the midst of great faithfulness to Saul time and time again serving him, even time and time again sparing his life. David has watched as God has been faithful to him despite how the king that he has longed to serve is going after him and trying to kill and slay him. Yet what you find is David remaining faithful and God being all the more faithful in it. I mean, how easy would it have been for this king Saul to eventually have slain David apart from God's providential hand protecting David time and time again? He remembers God's faithfulness. Or lastly, maybe he remembers God's faithfulness in the taking of Jerusalem, a city that no one should be able to take. And yet David did. How did David do these things? How did David survive Saul coming after him and eventually take the throne? How did he survive uh, facing Goliath? How did he survive the taking of Jerusalem, a city that should never, ever be able to be taken? Why? He did it from God's refuge, from his faithfulness, from the fact that God has been David's strong tower. God alone has been David's strong tower. David is remembering these things. And I want to point out before we go any further this idea that remembering always leads to revival. It it, it, it leads to something, a response in the human heart. Have you ever noticed their moments? Perhaps you consider them, um, we can look at them from the moment we come to faith in Christ. We use that as an Ebenezer, so to say. We set up these stones, we set up these things of remembrance. and, And our salvation is one of those. We even have a song here that we sing relatively frequently, a good one. I I still remember the day you saved me. Love that song. Because it gives us a moment to stop and to consider. I remember that day. I remember my life never being the same. And it should provoke a response within us. I actually, even as that song is played, it's always unique. And every so often, if you get the opportunity to do this, just be silent for a minute and listen to that proclamation from the church. Because you hear it even get a little louder. It crescendos on that. I remember the day you saved me. You hear the church sing a little louder when they consider that great day. It does something in the human heart to remember what God has done. And so as David is facing this trial, he begins to meditate on the way that God has been faithful to him. Secondly, he begins to remember his heritage. Notice this in, um, in verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. This is one of my favorite things to stop and to consider. The inheritance of the saints. You are aware that we have a great inheritance, aren't you? And, and one of the things that I find most frustrating in the American church is we forget to consider our heritage. We forget to consider our inheritance almost altogether. Um, I, I, I know for a fact is when I was growing up, and I grew up in the church, I mean, I frequented every Sunday, every Wednesday, and, and I never once... Heard of my inheritance? Never once. You know that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Is what First Peter says, and we have trouble even understanding what that looks like. Uh, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading means that it is eternal, and it, our inheritance is in actuality eternal. Secondly, just to point out this who who fits that? Who is the one who is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Friends, Christ is your inheritance. Christ is your reward. God is your reward. When we think about, um, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1 where it says, he gave us a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquired full possession of it. What was the deposit? It was the Holy Spirit of God. And the full inheritance is the beautiful truth that we get to dwell eternally with the complete Godhead. We will dwell eternally with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit. He is our great inheritance. And when David is remembering this, what David is actually doing is he's looking back to knowing there was a vow that I made that I am the Lord's, and I'm looking forward to what that vow will produce in my life. And friends, when you stop to consider and remember your salvation, when you remember the fact that God rescued you from your sin despite the fact that we were waging war against him, that he laid down his son's life on the cross. And Remember, no one killed Christ. He laid it down of his own accord for you, so that you might have him as an inheritance. And so what David is doing here is he's pausing and remembering even amidst all this trial and all this tribulation, I have an inheritance that will not burn. I have an inheritance that is eternal and I have an inheritance that is safe and secure, guarded by God through faith until I arrive. This is the great comfort that David has during this time. He pauses to meditate on this truth as he's praying these things and it must give him fuel and comfort and passion as he is praying these things and he's looking down over Jerusalem, remembering that his throne is taken, remembering that his son has exiled him and all those whom he loves, but he rests very comfortably for there is a throne that he will indeed have. There is an inheritance that he will indeed receive and it is not his, but it is the great rock that is indeed higher than he. And so we see that David is remembering God's faithfulness and he is remembering his great heritage that is purchased for him through a rock that is higher than him. Now let's look at David's request here because we're, we're getting somewhere. David's circumstances provoke him to fall on his knees and as he's remembering these, it's leading him to this idea of revival. There's something great happening in my life right now. And then he makes a couple of requests. The very first one is simply, hear my cry. This is a common theme in all of David's psalms. Um, you may not find it in each and every one, but just so frequently you see David plead, Lord, will you hear me? Hear me, Lord. And it's such a sweet thing to consider that the God who is omniscient, which means that he is fully aware of everything that's taking place at every given moment, past, present, and future, even to the point where he can consider things that are not even in reality, yet still, still pay special attention to you when you cry. Lord, hear me. Lord, hear me. And so David, prays this prayer. Lord, hear me. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. You can almost feel the angst in his soul as he comes. Far too often when we come to the Scriptures, we remove any personality from it. Friends, God inspired the Scriptures through distinct persons and personalities. He did not remove the personality of Paul when he wrote Romans. He did not remove the personality of Peter as he penned 1 Peter. He didn't remove the personality of John as he wrote Revelation. He didn't remove the personality of Moses throughout all of his writings. And he doesn't remove the personality of David as he writes. Feel what these writers are saying. You have this, this, this hear my cry, O oh God, that there is a deep anguish within the soul of, of, of uh, King David as he writes. And he's praying, Lord, would you remedy this situation? And so he's, he, just, he cries out, hear my cry, O oh God, listen to my prayer. And I almost think that it could be linked to what we find in Romans chapter 8 where when, when there are groans too deep, for when there's pain too deep for words, the Spirit groans on our behalf. David is going through great trial here, great tribulation, and yet he finds himself driven to his knees through his circumstances, and as he remembers the faithfulness of God, he has absolute confidence in making these great requests. The first of these is hear my cry. Secondly is lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's where I want to pause and kind of begin to walk through these. Who then is the rock that is higher than David? Who's higher than David? i have already mentioned that he's the great king. We've already mentioned that he's the one who has absolute authority and sovereign rule over all of Jerusalem, even though it might be taken for just a moment. But he'll get it back. So who is this rock that's higher than David? First of all, um, I would like to make the claim that this rock that is higher than he is none other than Christ Jesus. Now I want to point out a couple of things before we get into the New Testament. But let's look at a couple of times we see this idea of Christ the rock mentioned in the Old Testament. So first off, we see in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 through 14, it says this, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken away. Notice in verse 14 again. And he shall become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. A rock of stumbling. You see this language in particular all throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Every single one of the gospel writers confirmed the statement that, that Christ is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But one thing I love about this passage is there is a uniqueness about the fact that he is the stone on which the, 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 the builders built. He is the cornerstone. And you see in this passage where it mentions he becomes a sanctuary. What was David so desperately longing for? He was longing for that tabernacle, that great sanctuary where he could find rest and he could seek the Lord. Who then can be that sanctuary for him? Why? It's Christ. It's the rock that's higher than he. And you'll notice this in verse he says this, let me dwell in your tent forever. That's his cry. That's David's great longing. He knows that this tent that he is looking down on from the Mount of Olives is not a permanent one. No, it's crafted with hands, but there will be a tent that's far greater, not crafted by human hands, but but indeed it was crafted by God in the heavens for him. Because everything here, all the tabernacle, all the, the, the rituals, all of the sacrifices we see in the Old Testament are simply shadows and types looking forward to a better one. And so as David's looking over this and he prays, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, I wonder if he even began to have little glimpses of the great rock that would be the foundation of the sanctuary that he would be able to worship in eternally. Not temporary. As all of these things have been snatched away from him, he wants a firm foundation. He wants a rock that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that can never pass away. And indeed, he finds that in the kingdom of Christ, the great rock that is higher than him. Secondly, we see this in Isaiah 28. Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Looking back at that idea that this is a foundation, this is a stone that can never be shaken. And can you imagine as David is considering everything that's just been taken away from him, his kingdom, one that you would have to imagine that he found great rest in. He said, look, look at my kingdom, it's established, it's built. No really great difficulties have, have arisen for Israel yet. And, and so he's, he's resting very comfortably. Look at my great city. And yet he's just been reminded by his son Absalom, it can be taken. It can be taken. But this great cornerstone, this great rock that is higher than he, is a precious cornerstone, one that is tested and true, and it is indeed a sure foundation that will never, ever be shaken. Notice in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 through 35, a unique story one that is prophetic in the sense that it forecasts absolutely every kingdom that will rise and fall over the next uh, hundreds of years. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, Daniel interprets this dream for for his king. He says this, "...as you looked, a stone was cut out by no man, by no human hand, and it struck the image of its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer, threshing, the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Notice this. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now I want to point out a couple of things. The other request that David makes, and we'll, we'll look back at that in just a moment. Let me dwell in your tent forever is the second request that, God, that, that David makes of the king, of the rock that is higher than he. The third one is, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Isn't Daniel chapter 2 such a beautiful picture of taking rest in the shadows of his wings? He watches in Daniel all these ideas of these kingdoms rising and falling, yet they'll all be stopped, they'll all be conquered at the hands of this rock that is higher than he that Christ is the great conqueror and he will come in and watch them all fall yet his glory would never be shaken that he would be able to rest in the great shadow of that great mountain that would fill the earth. When David's request is, Lord, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, he knows as he's looking forward to the rock that is higher than he, he, is, he can rest very comfortably knowing that that rock would cast a shadow that he would be able to rest under, not just temporarily, not as he's looking down at the mount, as he's on the Mount of Olives, looking down at Jerusalem. He's not looking for just a brief idea of rest. He's looking for that eternal rest. And we find that only in Christ, that Christ is our Sabbath. He's the one in whom we can rest in. And then the last thing he requests is prolong the life of the king. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 6. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. It's an interesting prayer for a man, isn't it? David's ultimately praying, Lord, I, I really, what I'm asking you to do is, is, is make me last throughout all the generations. Is that what David's praying? Is he praying for immortality? Is he praying for eternal life here on the earth that he might reign on that king forever, reign on that throne forever? It's an interesting thing, wouldn't it, if that's what David's praying here? It's odd. I, I, I don't hear many men pray, Lord, let me live forever. I can't think of a time where I see Daniel say that. I mean, David say that. And I'm convinced that what we have here is not David praying for himself. No, he's praying for that rock that is higher than he. He's praying for that king who would come, that he would indeed actually reign on the throne of David forever. David knew that he would not reign forever on that throne. He knew that not even his sons would reign forever on that throne. But he knew there would be one coming through his line that would actually have that scepter of Judah never pass from him. He would be able to sit on that throne as sovereign ruler and king forevermore. And this is what David's plea is is as he's... Dealing with all of these circumstances as he's tired, as he's remembering all the great things that God has done for him. He's not thinking and praying, Lord, prolong my days. No, he's finding his comfort in the fact that there is one who is coming after him that will be the faithful sovereign king that is far better than he will ever be. Now, let me show you a couple of other things that we see in the New Testament in regard to this Christ, our higher rock. Because I think through these requests that David makes, we see very clearly that this passage is, yes, about David's circumstances, but above anything else, it's about the Christ that would come. It's about the rock that is actually higher than David. So look in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. It says this, And all drank the same spiritual drink, whom they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ." You see, this is not an isolation. This is not me looking at a passage and trying to draw Christ out. Time and time again throughout Scripture, we see this idea of Christ the rock, the one who is able to feed his people, the one who is able to care for them, even to the point where we're in the days of wandering in the wilderness. God provided to Israel, not through some random rock. Why would he provide water from a rock? How weird is that? It's odd, isn't it? But it's not when you understand that from Genesis to Revelation, the whole revelation of God points to one individual. It points to Christ. And the reason that God would pull water from a rock is not to point them and to look at a rock and be like, "Wow, that's interesting, water's coming from a rock. No. It's to look and for them to see this this rock, there's something different. It's pointing me to something different. And as David looked back at this rock, he would ask, what is this about? And then we see, and as Paul looks back at it, this rock is Christ. He's the one who provides. He's the one who cares for our needs. He's the one who's able to to make it where we can dwell forever in the king's presence. He's the one who lets us rest in his tent and under the shelter of his wings. And then this is one of my favorite little coincidences, and coincidences in scripture just aren't a thing. God put them there. So Matthew chapter 16, a very interesting passage, um, says this in verse 18 and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter. You're all familiar with this. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What in the world does this passage have to do with Psalm 61? It's interesting. uh, The Septuagint is a collection uh, where 70 writers came in to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. And what they did is they just brought it straight over, they translator, transliterated it word for word, brought it into the Greek language. And what the writers of the Septuagint translated, um, chapter, chapter 61 of Psalm and verse 2, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, is the exact same word that we find here in Matthew chapter 16. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church. Who is the rock that is higher than David? It is Christ. He is the rock that is higher than us. He is the rock on which the church is built. And friends, as we look at this passage, my prayer is this, that there is a unique response that we should give to the rock that is higher than us. First of all, there should be circumstances surrounding our lives day in and day out that drive us and drive us to our knees before that great rock and plead, Lord, lead me to this great rock. You see, no matter of our circumstances, whether they be good or bad, we should always have a heartbeat that longs to have intimate fellowship day in and day out with Christ. David, even though not having the full revelation of God's word, knew that there was one better than he, knew that there was one that he must seek refuge in. And although he did not have the full revelation of God, he knew that that great king would come. And he looked forward to his day, even to the point where he would pray for it. Prayed in absolute faith looking forward to this rock that was higher than he. And then you see this. What is his response? What's our response to this? As we pray, Lord, regardless of my circumstances, I'm faint. And we're all faint, aren't we? I mean, day in and day out, we're all tired from something. Our circumstances are not perfect. We live in a fallen world, and therefore we live in this idea of a human condition where we are faint. We feel distant from things. We feel exiled, as David does. Because frankly, as a believer, you are never home. You're never home. You're always as David is. You're far from that great place, that permanent and perfect fellowship with God. Although we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, it's not the completeness of that intimate fellowship with God because sin still dwells within us. We are always far. We are always faint. We are tired because our bodies are failing. And yet, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. There is one that is higher than I. And David's plea is lead me to this rock. So even in the midst of our frailty, even in the midst of our fatigue, we have a great God who is able to lead us to a rock that is higher than he. And he will not fail or falter on the way. You know, one of the beauties of this passage is I'd imagine that many would look at it and say, um, David's going to have to make his way to that rock. That's foolishness. He couldn't. But we have a great God who led him there. And you can imagine he did not simply reveal it and and, kind of give him inklings of it, but he took him by the hand and showed him. He showed him that great king that was higher than he. He knew that it was coming. And look at what David's response is to that great revelation of a rock that is higher than he. In verse 8, so will I ever sing praise to your name. Is that not the natural response? A Christian who does not worship, I am sorry, is not a Christian. There is absolutely no response to the gospel that does not lead to unceasing praise. To say that we know this great rock, the one on which Christ built his church, namely himself, this rock that gives us shelter, gives us comfort, that gives us a kingdom that cannot be shaken or falter, if we can say that we know that great rock and praise not ever be on our lips, then we are fools or the gospel is not as good as we make it seem. Friends, if we know this gospel, this rock that would come and lay down his life and be struck on our behalf, that water might flow from him. And, and we say that we, we, can, we have that and we can be apathetic toward anything, whether that be our day-to-day life and spending fellowship and intimate moments with Christ or whether that be sharing that good news with the lost and dying world, then we are fools or liars. That's it. Those are your options. So David responds in worship, and, and you can imagine as he you writes, know, I like to think about this idea of, of David kneeling as he begins to write this psalm, as he begins to consider this. And, I always, and I'm just curious what his, what his temperament would be as he rose. As he began to consider these things, as he dealt with the circumstances, but he remembered the ways that God has been faithful, and then even to consider a rock that is higher than he, looking forward to the great king that would sit on his throne, never pass away, but would truly establish justice and righteousness all his days. I wonder if he rose in boldness. You'd have to imagine that he did. How could he not? And so we see that he arises in praise, and then you see in the last part of verse 8, as I perform my vows day after day. Secondly, he responds in obedience. How can we not be obedient to the great king who amidst our complete inability, who amidst our frailty and our ignorance, our blindness, he looks down on us and draws us that we might find our rest and comfort in him forevermore. How can we not respond in obedience? How can we not? How can we not be obedient to Him? Do you know the greatest mark of the believer is obedience? The greatest mark of the, of the believer is obedience. And friends, if there is no obedience in us, then I would argue there is no Christ in you. I know those are harsh words, And 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 I'm sorry that from time to time harsh words have to be said, but my friends, if we don't ever confront these hard and difficult things, we're going to watch people die and go to hell because they had some confession moment when they were six, and yet never one day in their life following that did anything to pursue Christ or obedient to His commands or worshipped Him. That is not Christianity. That is a false gospel that the South has been spreading. And it's tragic because we will watch people die convinced because we have not truly heralded the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus rescuing you and leaving you where you are. It is him rescuing you and actively day in and day out conforming you into his image. It is a gospel of justification and sanctification. He will do a great work in you. David was never the same after he encountered the living God and no human being can ever make that claim. That I am, have encountered the holiness of God, that I've encountered His goodness, and yet I'm still going to walk the exact same way that I once did. It's foolishness. And only a fool would sell it, and only a fool would believe it. So then, how do we respond? That's ultimately where we get to, and I would like to point out good ways, I mean beautiful ways that the Lord has pointed out, ways for us to pause and to remember, ways that we get the opportunity to do rather frequently. First of all, we get to remember the great things of God that would promote in us um, worship, that would promote in us obedience, first of all, through the ordinance of baptism. Perhaps these seem like an odd thing to talk about right now, but David had these benchmarks in his life where he considered and, and, and really stopped to think how God had worked in, an individual, in his life. And friends, each and every one of us who have been baptized have the opportunity to stop and reflect in my baptism, I made a profession across not only my life, but on everyone else who saw that the church as a whole, I got to confess this, that I am no longer my own. I've been bought at a price, and I've, I've died to myself, and I'm raised in the newness of life in Christ. What a beautiful moment to remember. And isn't it interesting that um, being dunked underwater is traditionally a pretty memorable event? Like, he set it up to be memorable. Secondly, as you come together in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, what a great moment of remembrance. It's actually set apart for you to remember and proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection. The purpose is that so that we would stop and we remember we consider these things just as David, in the midst of this difficult circumstance, considered the way that God delivered him from Goliath and Saul and watched him take the temple or watched him take Jerusalem. He began to consider those things so that he could rise in boldness. What would happen if every time we took the Lord's Supper, we did it exactly the way it called us to? If we stopped and we examined ourselves as the cup and the bread went out? We bowed on our knees before God to examine ourselves and we began to meditate on the goodness of God that he he, he has truly come, that he's laid down his life, that this blood is truly the blood of a new covenant, a covenant that I can rest in eternally, a covenant that purchased me, a covenant that made sure for all my days I would dwell in his house, not as a servant but as a son. How would we rise from the Lord's Supper? Would we rise like cowards? No, we would rise eager, wouldn't we? eager and passionate to go out and to share this great news for we have had a moment just to, just to pause and remember and prayerfully in the midst of that remembrance we have revival in our own souls. And so my prayer for you this evening is this. First of all, that you know the rock that's higher than you. Because friends, that rock is the only thing that is able to give you a firm foundation for every moment of your life. Everything else fades, everything else burns, but that rock, no, he endures. And so my prayer for you is that you know that rock. Secondly, that if you do know that rock, that you build every ounce of your life upon it. For only in Christ is our foundation sure. And as we pile up all the things of this world, as we begin to hoard all of the the junk that this world has to offer, may we pray, Lord, burn it all. Leave me Christ.